You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. the chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening this is the f11 photography podcast yes yes very nice yes this is the f11 photography podcast your weekly photography podcast where we talk about things like technique and process and uh, sometimes gear and anything photography or videography related, I think we'll do some videography episodes at some point because Brandon does do a healthy amount of video and I do some video for YouTube. So I think we're going to put that in our future docket. But today's episode, we are going to be having a very broad discussion about growing as a photographer because I think a lot of times we get very comfortable with what we do. But you remember, you have a finite amount of time on this earth. We are a small speck of dust in the space-time continuum. And you want to learn as much as you can before you go, right? Um, Don't you want to be a complete photographer, not just technically, but artistically speaking? Or maybe you don't. But in today's episode, uh, we are going to be talking to all of you who do want to grow as a photographer. We're going to talk about actionable items, mapping out things that you can do, um, different uh, ways that you can go about growing yourself uh, artistically and technically. So, Brandon, I want to talk to you first about uh, actionable items that you do uh, to grow as a photographer. Well, actionable items for me is um, I like to chase that feeling of of knowing I'm creating something new that is unfamiliar, like I want, I want to see something unfamiliar to me that is also very much an extension of me in my work and is of quality. So actionable items for me, after shooting for a while, um, you no longer, you, you learn less and less just inherently being with your camera on set and it becomes more of a deliberate thing where you have to go out of your way to search for new ideas and search for new ways that you can grow as a photographer. And so one of the actionable items for me is um, is still growing from inspiration from other people in their work and also trying new techniques with my camera that don't necessarily pertain to my style of photography, but how can I incorporate it into my style of photography? So right now, as example, is shutter drags are really, really becoming popular in the in the editorial fashion scene instead of using a post manipulation to blur the photo i'm currently perfecting the one eighth of a second shutter drag with studio strobes and um, that's something that i'm learning to perfect and hopefully that opens up a new world for me in uh, slow shutter speed photography with an editorial sort of edge to it and i remember learning how to do shutter eighth one eighth of a second shutter drags on film and having to wait a couple of days to see if you got it right. <laughs> those are always those are always good. Um, no shutter. I, I am as somebody who's a, a 
less of a post-production, more get it right at the camera type of guy. I'm all for shutter drag. Something that I always do is I kind of pick a subject. Uh, YouTube, man, we live in the YouTube world. A lot of times I'll just go, I want to learn this technique. And I, I try to carve out time. You know, at least once a month, maybe find some technique I want to work on and I'll go just find a few videos on it because I'm always trying to stay fresh. Um, you know, sometimes I rest on my laurels, I get lazy and I'll start looking at my work. I'm like, man, a lot of my work has been kind of looking the same lately. And I'm, I'm very much driven by, you know, there's this struggle between, oh, I need to develop my photography fingerprints and have my own style. Uh, but then there's also the, well, if you have your photography fingerprints and you have your own style, don't all your photos kind of all look the same at that point? Like they all kind of look like, so I struggle with that internally and I, I, I lean into and embrace like, it's okay if a lot of my photos look different. I'm going to shoot some stuff on uh, Fuji Acros and then I'm going to go shoot it uh, on HP5 Ilford and then I'm going to go shoot it on a medium format digital and now I'm going to go shoot it on my APS-C and you know what? At the end of the day, I still think that people can look at my work and be like, yeah, that looks like a shot Kevin took. It just happened to be in a different format or whatever. And um, I'm okay with that. But that's also the inner gearhead of me. It kind of gives me, you know, that's part of one of the cool things about having a bunch of different types of cameras is that I can just wake up one morning and go, I'm going to go use my uh, Fuji X-H2 today to shoot with, and I'm just going to make it work. But I think it also keeps me creative. It's like... um, the Apple challenge we talked about when Jordan Groby was uh, joining us remotely, where it's like, hey, go make this work. You know, like you get one lens, you got to take 500 pictures of the same Apple type of thing. A lot of times I'll, I'll challenge myself and I go, you know, I'm in a, like I, I did a shoot last September where I only took a 135 millimeter F2 with me. And I said, I'm going to do this whole photo shoot on my 135 F2 and I have to make it work. And I ended up getting some great shots. So, dude, that when you force yourself to only use film, that is, yeah, you learn a fucking ton from a shoot, and you and you slow the fuck down. But uh, yeah, I still use my digital to test. Dude, <laughs> I don't, I don't go all film. Like I, I always test in digital just to make sure that like my highlights aren't blowing out. I'm dude, like, okay. some of my favorite shots came from a shoot I did with a uh, Nikon FE thirty five millimeter f two point eight, and I used Cine Still and Portra, and that was it. That's all I use. It's fantastic. Well, I will. So I have a Canon Rebel G. My my mom and dad got me that as my uh, student camera. It's a 35 millimeter, and you know I'm always like uh, way more into lenses than than bodies. But like it's a student camera. You can buy a Rebel G used right now on eBay for thirty dollars. But if you put an L lens on it, it makes some beautiful looking shots. And uh, my point being is that has a meter on it, so I'm I don't have to test. Like with 35 millimeter on a on a Canon that has a meter built into it, I, I don't need to test in digital. I trust the meter on that. That's literally the camera I learned to shoot on. So I know the meter on that camera really well. Um, but if I'm shooting medium format on a 50 year old manual focus camera with no meter, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pull out my. Um, I usually take like just like my Fuji XH2 with me, and I just like take a quick shot and go, yeah, okay, the highlights look pretty good on this. I just want to yeah. make sure my subject's illuminated. My my big problem when I'm shooting stuff like portraits, is I don't want to underexpose too much because then when you start pulling the shadows up, it starts looking terrible. Right. So uh, portrait portrait takes overexposure pretty well. Well, getting back into. Um Getting back into actual items and learning stuff, I just want to share with everyone that the two things um, I'm looking forward to learning more about right now is 
Number one, I want to learn how to shoot with a really high grain ISO. I think that is so like such a cool look and it might be overkill to have a nice digital camera and then bump up the ISO to like 12,000 just to, you know, just to take a photo that's super grainy. But for some reason, I really like the profile that it gives. And I was doing low light photography at, at a venue with an 85 millimeter 1.8. And I took these really, really grainy, noisy images where when you move the slider of your curves layer, any color, it basically changes the entire color of the photo and it hits the pixels in such a weird way because the data is so fucked that it's unnatural. So I think that's really cool. And then the other thing I'm going to be getting into here pretty soon, which I've been experimenting with already, is how to take uh, a passable blurry photo where not, not everything's in focus, but only some things are, if not everything's out of focus. Because I've been taking some photos recently with a modeling agency and I've kind of dicked around with it a bit. And like, if you can capture the glimmer in someone's eyes and it's out of focus and you capture that, that little star in people's eyes when, even when it's out of focus, it, it doesn't matter. It, it almost has more of an emotional impact. And I think there's a way to refine it deliberately so that it's not just a happy accident. So those are the things I'm going to be working on here pretty soon. Nice. Yeah. And on the uh, high grain, high ISO uh, film, I grew up, like I, I played in punk rock bands and, you know, the film days, like you get, take pictures of somebody in a nightclub in 1993, you're going to be using like Ilford Delta 3200 or the uh, T-Max back then. I think they made a 3200 of that. And it was always like super grainy. And I, I, I fell in love with that look. And I actually, I'm a Capture One user. I don't use Lightroom. Uh, and in Capture One, they call uh, the presets styles. And so I have my own styles sometimes that I, I apply. And I have one that I call the CBGB, which is a famous famous punk rock club in New York. And it, I, I, it's a very gritty black and white, almost looks like a photocopy. It, it just, it just, I mean, you're, you're pushing hard into those highlights, and it goes really well with. Um, high ISO, high, high grain, but I, I love, I love that look. And sometimes, uh, if I'm like, I did a shoot, um, yesterday morning, uh, where the model needs a really edgy look. And I'm actually thinking about leaning into that, uh, style as my basis, even though I shot at 100 ISO in, in a, you know, in studio with my GFX, I actually want it to look kind of rough. So you need know, to bump the contrast up, blow those highlights out intentionally a little bit. And it, and it gives you kind of that, uh, that vibe. But, uh, but yeah, I, I love that look. And, um, uh, but as far as, uh, pushing myself, you know, this, this year growing as a photographer, uh, something that I am a hundred percent, uh, working on. And this is something that you do really, really, really well. Uh, I don't, so I, I have a studio and I'm in a shared space with some other photographers. And one of my limitations is that I don't have time to build a set and, you know, you can only take so many, like you can always get away with taking shots in front of a white backdrop, fashion gray and black, but my portfolio sometimes looks a little too heavy in that area. And I want to start working with backdrops more and set design. And actually yesterday I pulled, I have some, uh, I have a black and white, um, a sheet, uh, backdrop that I pulled out and I just did it cause I wanted some texture and I just told the model play around with the play around with the texture on there, play around with the, the sheet. But I, I, it's something that I want to grow on is I want to, 
uh, when I start doing these studio shoots, I want to build out sets more. And there's actually a new studio that opened up here recently Daddy. that reached out to me. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be working with them next month on a couple shoots because uh, I need a different space to just shoot in. Not that there's anything wrong with the space that I, sh I do shoot in, but, you know, you need, to, you need to change your environment. I mean, at the end of the day, if you said classify yourself, I'd say I'm an environmental portrait photographer. Yes, I shoot editorial and all that, but, like, I really need the models to interact with their environment. And if their environment is a white wall, there's not a whole hell of a lot to interact with there. So I, I do the white wall stuff if I'm, you know, especially if like I'm doing fashion shoots and we're highlighting the clothes, it's like, well, there's nothing else to focus on but the clothes because you got that in a white wall. It's like a fucking Gap commercial. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Back to our conversation earlier, I, 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 and I talked about this, I believe, in our very first episode is I don't want to be niched. So, like, uh, I mean, I remember during Clubhouse, uh, I met Peter Hurley online, and, you know, he has his headshot crew, and, like, they they, do, they all do remarkable work. So, I'm, I just want to say, like, the, the headshot photographers are there are awesome, but they're very niched. All they do is headshots. They're like money-making operations that pump out headshots. They use the exact same lighting in the exact same place every single time. All their headshots look exactly the same. They shoot right at – they shoot at – not the most shallow depth of field, but a shallower depth of field than I would typically take a headshot at where the fall off starts happening at the hair and all that. And it's got a look and it's a brand. It's the Peter Hurley brand. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Everybody gets to make a buck and his headshots do look slick. It's an amazing style, but like it's a brand and that's all these people do like 24 seven is they just pump out headshots. They're, they're, and I remember I was talking with some of these people online and that's all they're talking about is how much money they're making. I'm like, Hey, that's awesome. But from, uh, uh, you know, the, growing as a photographer, I would hit a wall very quickly if that's all I did. Like I, I, it's just not how I'm programmed and that's okay. We're all in photography for different reasons. And I'm not passing judgment on them because those guys all take headshots better than I take headshots. Oh, yeah. I'll never take headshots as good as those people because I don't want to put in the effort to do what they do. And to me, this is just kind of a little bit of a rant on headshots. Now, if somebody books me for specifically for headshots, I, so I don't advertise that I, I take headshots because I don't want to become like the headshot crew people. Like I don't want to just do headshots all the time. They love it. And I was like, that's awesome. Lean into it. Enjoy it. Go make your money. That's awesome. But like to me, a headshot is just a shot. I take in a portfolio session with somebody I'm like, okay, we're gonna do a quick headshot. Cool. I, you know, take it from the chest up, put a little bit of space above their head, you know, make sure that my perfect thirds is hitting right at their eyes when I'm cropping it. Okay, cool. Everything looks great. Headshots done. Now let's do some full body stuff. Like it's just, it's almost an afterthought for me. It's not the main event. Yeah. The main event is them walking out with an amazing portfolio, hopefully. Right. Or at least stuff that they can add to their portfolio. And part of it's a headshot. And so, um, you know, I don't want to be niched that much into just headshots. One type of shot that would drive me crazy. It's like, can we at least go outside and do headshots somewhere where we can throw some background out of focus or something? It's give me something more interesting to look at. But it's like an industry, man. And uh, like I said, more power to those people because they can do headshots at a level that I'll never be able to do, do it to because I just can't hold my attention that long in a specific area. Okay. Well, that's an interesting thing you bring up, right? So today we're talking about how to improve yourself as a photographer. Now, if you go into a niche where you're trying to improve your headshot business, 
you you know there's a there's sort of a threshold you can meet there's a wall you're going to hit as a headshot photographer and you know at the end of the day you're going to have tape on the ground in your studio and you're going to be at least like tripod one goes here you're going to have notches on that tripod where it's just like okay this is the height we're going to move it to this height we're going to do this this is where light one goes this is where light two goes this is where the hair light goes at this angle this extension okay you you are you are setting up um you were setting up a business. You were setting up a repeatable business. This episode is not for you. Power to you for that, but you are a businessman trying to be an artist. We're artists here trying to be businessmen, and there's a big difference. Well, and I think that uh, headshot photography is mainly a technical style of photography. I mean, you know, even Peter Hurley, Peter Hurley has his own lighting system built around it. Like it's like this five-panel lighting system. I think it's from Westcott. It's really it looks really good. Uh, I think it's like five thousand dollars, and so like they all follow kind of the same template. And, uh, you know, like I said, more more power to them. I think it's great. But uh, a lot of them, that's all they do. And, like, yeah. like I, I have massive respect for them. But, yeah, it's just uh, not – I would I would, I would, would quit photography, man. Like, I, I would get so bored with that so fast. I get bored of my own photography about every every three to four months. I'll have, a, I'll have a one to two, maybe three month stretch where I'm just like, fuck yeah, like, let's do it. We're pushing the envelope. And then after that, I just – I want to throw myself off a bridge. It gets so boring. So, uh, you know – we are victims to our own environment sometimes. So I find that in Texas, we have two seasons. We have hot and we have cold where, where ice is over and our infrastructure cannot support 31 degree weather with rain. And, um, and so I find myself planning my photography around the seasons. So like when it's shitty outside, I, I'm a port, I'm a portrait photographer in the studio at that point in time. That's what I'm doing. I'm doing a lot of portrait work. I'm not doing anything outdoors, but then I, I, I call it editorial season. Those three weeks, four weeks when like the weather's actually like really nice in the spring and in the fall, I will plan tons of editor outdoor editorial shoots with really elaborate storylines and everything. I will try to knock those out in, the, in that time because that's where I'm getting my best. But then I find myself like a lot of photographers around here. It's like, okay, it's July. You know, let's, 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 let's hammer out a concept that's fast. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to lose you after about 30 minutes. You're going to be miserable. So what you're saying is like part of, part of developing yourself as a photographer is learning about the seasons of where, where you live, your environment and what you can accomplish in, in the environment around you. Absolutely. So uh, I also shoot street photography. I mean, doing reconnaissance. So here's, here's a pro tip I've learned over the years. So I travel around Texas all the time. Um, I, I'm, I find myself, you know, I'm, I'm Austin based, but I find myself in Dallas. I find myself in San Antonio. I find myself in Houston a lot and I go shoot street photography in all those cities. And when I'm shooting street photography in those cities, I take mental notes about, uh, Oh, this would be a cool place to shoot a model. And like, there's this bridge in Dallas under, uh, Woodall Rogers freeway where on like January 12th every year. And I just realized I missed it. I should have been up there on the summer on January 12th. There's this gap between two bridges where when the sun hits a certain point, this is like some Indiana Jones shit. Like we're going to get the lost arc here, but the, the sun hits at a perfect spot and it casts a shadow, your shadow. And I'm not kidding. Your shadow goes like 700 feet because it's this long bridge of nothing but concrete. And I have a, I'll show a picture of it to you offline, but your shadow goes forever and i just i have this concept i want to do with a model where i have the model standing there and it's just like this long concrete shadow of them that goes 700 feet and but my point being is is you take note of certain places at certain not just not just certain places but certain times a year during certain seasons oh you know i know that under this bridge this certain type of uh, bush grows between this month and that month you take all these mental notes 
and and then you apply them to like okay now I have an editorial where it would be a cool place to shoot. It's like oh yeah that bridge I did in Dallas. Now I'm gonna go reach out to one of the agencies up in uh, up in Dallas and see if I can get a model for this concept shoot I'm gonna work on. And so that's one that that's ways uh, I think the the point here is cross discipline. So take things that you learn in landscape or street photography or whatever and apply them to your portraiture or vice versa. Um, you know, like learning, you know, I know that like uh, in most landscape photography, you're shooting at F8 of 11 or whatever, but you might learn that, hey, shooting a shallow depth of field sometimes can do some interesting things and unique things. Maybe I need to try that with my landscape. A lot of times, you know, people tell you that uh, you, have to, you have to use a wide angle lens with landscape. Some of my best landscape shots, and I don't do landscape often, but some of my best landscape shots were taken on a 70 to 200 at 200 because of the compression. You can compress the, the, the mountains and some of my favorite photos ever growing up and I didn't know what what it was I just know I used to see these beautiful shots of like the New York skyline where the skyscrapers looked amazing and what 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 I found out was they were taken with a telephoto because it compresses all the buildings and it looks really cool at 200 millimeters or in some cases they were taking them with like a 1200 millimeter lens just insane uh, compression you get out of it but you know um, another thing is uh trying out I guess that ties into what I'm just talking about is try different lenses out so like the very first shot on my website when you go to my landing page was taken at 14 millimeters of a model sitting in a chair. And no one ever tells you that a 14 millimeter lens is for shooting models. They tell you it's for shooting landscapes or real estate or something like that. You know, oh, you're going to shoot a model. You got to shoot a 35 for environment. You got to shoot a 50 for a normal field of view. And you got to shoot an 85 for a portrait or a 135 for a tight portrait. Or if you want to just completely make them look fake, you get out a 200 F2, which is a $6,500 lens, and make everything look like liquid butter. But no, I shot it with a 14 millimeter. It was a 14 millimeter F4. I mean, there's really no point in of having a f2.8 or an f1.4 lens at one point at, at 14 millimeter because you're so far wide back, you're not going to get any sub subject separation anyway. But um, but yeah, I mean, just trying out lenses that weren't meant for what you're you're using them for and see what you get. That's something that I like to do a lot of times to be more creative and help myself grow as a photographer, learn what things weren't meant to go, two things that weren't meant to go together, go together really well. That's that juxtaposition. And that's where, yeah, you really learn to push the boundaries. I mean, obviously, obviously when you're, when you're starting out, like on your journey, uh, something that's really helpful is you don't want to sample like five different fucking focal lengths, you know, throughout your career, because you're not going to, you're not going to get used to, to any of them and you're not going to have any remembrance or any frame of reference for what they're going to look like. It's going to be a surprise every time you put your lens or your camera up to your eyes. So when you're, when you're starting out, I highly advise pick an 85, pick 50 or pick 35 and just stick with that lens for about a year, grab one prime and maybe do a rotation over three years. But that way, you know what a 50 is going to look like. You can you can walk around, and this is the crazy thing. And I, I did this. I, I got a 50 millimeter 1.4, and I shot on that for about a year and a half. And I shot on that exclusively for everything. And I got I got sick to my stomach of seeing in 50 millimeter. I could walk around, look at an image. I could look at something just in real time, and just I could literally see where the edges of the frames were. I just knew what that photo was. And it got to the point where it was just so ugly and so monotonous that I started dreaming of what it would look like if I wasn't using a 50. I'd shoot a model and I'd just be there thinking to myself, God damn it. You know, like I just, I just need, you know, a little bit less. I need a, I need like a 38 at least. Like give me that just so I can incorporate the background. And so like you get to a point where you're going to want to start 
Now you're going to want to get to a point where you start craving something different, you know, because you can go out and you can get a smorgasbord, smorgasbord of equipment. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're growing unless you dedicate that time to each individual piece of equipment. Yeah, and uh, you, you bring up a good point. Like uh, I went to a phase where I was like, I'm going to try out one lens for a while. And so because uh, I wanted to learn all the small uh, nuanced details of the lens. And one of the things I learned, so like when we think of an 85 millimeter, we think of a head and shoulders headshot. That's like the go-to headshot lens. Um, we also are told that, hey, you can't shoot at 1.2 and get everything in focus. Well, if you're, if you're shooting at headshot distance, that's absolutely the case. But one thing I learned by forcing myself to use nothing but an 85 millimeter lens for a long time is, and I, I don't, I'm definitely not taking credit for this because I guarantee you can find a thousand other photographers who are doing what I discovered in using this lens. I'm definitely not doing anything revolutionary here, but I learned that I can shoot that lens at 1.2 in portraiture. You just have to get about 20 feet away from your subject. And, but one of my favorite shots that I, I, I kind of became a signature shot of mine for a while. I've shied away from it because we're, we are doing an episode about growing and I've kind of like evolved a little bit, but one of my favorite things to do with an 85 millimeter is get the, get the lens and get super low to the ground, about 20 to 30 feet away from your subject. And you'll just have this in focus subject where everything is razor sharp, at least on my Canon lenses. It is, and you have a liquefied background and you just see this tiny sliver. Like here's everything that's in focus, and it, it is a cool look. And, and, and because you have foreground elements uh, on the ground, because you're so close to the ground, it, it just it's a really good way to demonstrate depth of field. And even if you don't have a 1.2, if you have a 1.4, 1.8, if you just want to like learn about depth of field, I recommend trying that shot out with an 85. It's just so easy to see everything there. And then, like I said, it became a signature shot of mine for a while that I would try. I mean, every model would be like that thing I t we talked about in the episode about models where I said, hey, pick your favorite five shots of mine. They'd all pick the me low to the ground on the 85 shot. Thought, that looks so good. I've, I've helped out so many portfolios with that type of shot. Like it's my it's my go to like if I have a, a, a model like I had a male model who was with a, a fitness agency and he was like, hey, I want to get some shots of me like, you know, running and looking all buff and shit. And I did that shot. I was like at um, a park near us and I just got low to the ground and you see like this out of focus grass, out of focus grass, sliver of grass in focus. Dude's like ripped running, pumping blood through his body. It, look, it, it looks, and I, and I purposely like tilted the lens a little bit too to make everything look a little more action-like. I don't know. It was just, it was one of my favorite shots. But anyway, uh, trying out that same lens uh, a lot helps. Now I'm more evolving. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I've gone from 85 to 35 and now i'm kind of gravitating toward 50 normal field of view kind of messing with that uh i'm moving away from the telephoto stuff and getting a little wider now i'm getting more environmental but uh what's your go-to lens at the moment uh my go-to is i'm trying to transition over to 85 um what i'm really really trying to nail right now is um i tend to shoot well i use a 24 to 70 like really often and I'm finding that for a lot of my deliberate editorial stuff, uh, my main concerns right now when I'm in the zone are uh, I want to take a photo that I don't have to crop in, pros in post. The framing for me is super, is, is extremely critical. Um, I'm trying to make sure that every, like, the things that are in the photo are there deliberately. I'm trying to, I love happy accidents, but I'm trying to take a photo that doesn't have the happy accent. I want it. I want it to be what I intended it to be. So 
oftentimes I'll, I'll just notice I stick between 35 and 50 millimeters. Um, I am seeing that I am definitely going up to 70, and so I'm bringing my 85 with me more often, um, playing around with the depth of field, and I'm I'm really on a on a venture right now where I'm trying to stay away from post. Not because it's a lot of work, not because I I, I hate it, but it just because I the satisfaction of taking a photo and seeing it and knowing that the things that you like about that photo are there because you put them there and not because they accidentally happened, that is in a super rewarding experience for me. Well, I was brought up on doing uh, as little in post as possible. And, and, and this, this stems from my time as an audio engineer. Um, so in the studio, you get an arsenal of microphones. You try them out in front of a subject. And uh, the reason you do that is because you're figuring out which microphone fits their voice the best. And then when you find that microphone, you're like, great. That is hours and hours and hours of equalization I don't have to do. I don't have to go in and figure out what's good and what's not good. We just, we just, we got it. That decision has been made. Let's move on to the next decision. And so it's all about getting that right at the camera. And I'm not a post-production guy. Like I do like doing some post-production. Um, you know, I do like to play around with things, presets, things like that. Uh, you know, but in general, like I'm like, I go out and I buy a good lens because damn it. If, if, I'm, if I'm going out and buying a $3,000 lens, it better be freaking amazing on the front end. And, and a lot of times they just have that characteristic I'm looking for. One of the reasons why I love uh, shooting, uh, even though I primarily shoot Canon for my commercial work, uh, any job that requires reliability, I shoot Canon uh, because the autofocus on it is perfect and the colors are, are, are pretty good on it uh, and good enough to work with in post. But I do have to lot, do a lot more work with post. One of the reasons I like to shoot Fuji, especially my GFX, is I shit you not, um, I will take a picture with one of the film simulations on and I'll go, that's exactly the way I pictured it in my head. I just need to like double check that my exposure is right. I might bump up the contrast a little bit. And then if I have to do any retouching, I will move on to the next picture. I have, I save so much time in post-production uh, with that. You are listening to the F11 photography podcast. Uh, something I, I do want to talk about ways you can grow as a photographer. Oh, something that I try to do on every shoot is I'll bring like a kind of a wild card lens with me, something that I, I, I didn't put in the planning stages. It's just there in case of emergency break glass. Uh, when I do a studio shoot, I'll plan out a couple different colors for backdrops. I'll, I'll, I'll show up the day of and find out what I call a wild card backdrop color. And I go, I'm just going to throw this up there and see if I need it. And oftentimes when, you know, we talked about this in the model episode is once you get the base shots out of the way and it's time to create, you want as many tools at your disposal. And so a lot of times I try to have those in place in case I decide to get creative. I'll be like, hey, let's try this olive green backdrop color. Or, hey, I've got this weird fisheye lens that I brought. Let's try a couple crazy creative shots. And oftentimes like the crazy creative shots on the fisheye lens end up being the best shots of the day. And that you learn something and then you grow as a photographer. It's so true. And one of the th one of the things I'm learning is I definitely love the wild card approach. I have I have such a trouble or such a problem committing to that because I'm not a colors guy. I'm really really a mellow tuned out grayscale earth tone photographer. I love the moody stuff. I love the brutal, dull stuff. You know, almost lifeless. And that's just the that's just the way I shoot. I'm I, I love the subtleties. Um, so I often like if if I'm trying to push myself, it's usually I usually trying to hit a mark and, and getting there 
And what I mean by that is I used to shoot an image as balanced as I could with, and then I'd be thinking about, okay, this is how I'm going to change it in post to make it look the way I want it to. And it was always lacking. It always sucked because if you're leaving it to that, anything can happen. You know, at that point, you're just control copying and pasting on images. And that's no way to be a photographer. It's, it's, it's shitty. So what I, what I'm trying to do now is if I've got Okay, if I've got two V-flats in front of a harsh light and I've got a sliver of light coming down on a model's face and the rest of her body, I want I want to take the time to make sure, okay, is the light hitting her the way I want it to hit her? Is the Do I want the hot spot below her neck so that it, we're, we've got a faded gradient of light coming up to her face, hiding her eyes and maybe, you know, catching glimmers on her, on her, you know, on her eyelids and on, on her eyelashes? You know, we do want that, do we want that kind of noir aspect or do I want... You know, do I want her face fully blasted, a fully blasted sort of line of light coming down her face and then falling off just at the neck, you know, into darkness there? And, you know, do I want it to be high contrast? Do I want it to be low contrast? That sort of thing. So I I want to make sure that I'm adjusting everything there and then so that when I'm in post, like I've already got the foundation. The foundation is solid and then some. I've got 90% of the work done because here's the thing, and you won't know this. Once you develop your photographical eye and you get to this this place is you can, like the difference between a great photo and a fucking immaculate photo is those immaculate photos were, they were hammered out beforehand. You know, you can make a great photo look like you know, look somewhat close to that in post by just adjusting everything because we have so much data and so much control over it to work with that it's, you know, it's very powerful, but there's this subconscious way that you can tell that when that photo was taken the way that you formed it, there's, it just, it looks natural. The, The light fall off is the way that it was cemented in there. And the, the, the lower the adjustment amount that you make to it, the more, the more powerful and the more stunning the image the image is and that's what that's what separates um a lot of photographers is cuz is cuz you know you when you look at feature page photos a lot of those photos are just they're just fucking average shots with a with a lot of manipulation to look a specific way they're they're emulating a quote unquote look and looks get passed around on Instagram what you want to do is you want to build what's in your imagination you want that to come to life in real time you want to hit that 10 out of 10 times and that starts with knowing what you want if you don't even know what you want fair enough dick around until you do but when you know what you want you need to build the skills to get there. You need to build the skills of lighting. You need to build the skills of framing. You need to build the skills of knowing the compression with your focal lengths. And you need to build, uh, build the skills of, of seeing the light, not just the lighting. And then once you have all that together, you can take that time to build this photo, to build this look that you want. And then and that, that that's what being a photographer is. That's where you want to get to. And then once you hit that stage, then then the world is your oyster. You can do anything. Yeah, I use the the music analogy again because that's just the world I come from. But I find that a good balance of planning and spontaneity tends to be like it, it, the the best the best recipe for results. So, like when I would engineer a band, what I needed was a good combination of technical capture. So I needed the right microphones and the right places and all that. But I also needed the performance. The scene has to give you something. The subject has to give you something. And, you know, if the subject doesn't give you something, it doesn't matter how good your technical proficiency is. So you need a good balance of technical proficiency and performance. 
I mean, a band can give you a really good performance. Some of the best records I've ever listened to in my entire life, the band gave an, a, a masterful performance, but it was also captured well. Most of the best records ever made. Now, there are some records that it's like, uh, you know, like Metallica's Black Album, like every single note was like performed and then they hit stop and then they like perform the next note. But most, you know, most records aren't made that way. A lot of the bands I listen to, it's a performance and it's about capturing the magic in that performance. And I find that some of the best shots I've ever captured, 99.9% .9 of it was done at the source. It's like the right light with the right take, with the right model, with the right pose, with the right camera, with the right lens choice and everything. And then that's why I don't have to do much in post-production. Now, there are people who make careers out of their post-production. People do, you know, there's some certain styles. If you do painterly type stuff, we've got to go in and put textures over things and basically try to make everything look like a Renaissance painting, even though it started off as a photograph and a Nikon or a Canon or a Sony or whatever. So that is, it's a style unto itself. It's just not the style I do. I do more of a realist style. And to your point about, I like color, uh, especially when I shoot with my Fuji. Gosh, I like color, my GFX. But uh, and, and we've talked about it in previous episodes. If I, if you just made me shoot black and white from here on out, I mean, I would, that's my preferred medium. I love, I love shooting in black and white. I feel like it strips down because the the very essence of the type of work that I do is it's very personality based. I, I, if I'm not shooting for a fashion line, my editorial work is very much attuned to the eyes and the personality of the subject that I have in front of me. And I find that black and white strips down distractions and really focuses you in on their eyes and their personality, which is typically what I'm trying to pull out in my work. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. You know, I just like, like circling back to like what you want. And so Kevin and I, I think we're in a place where like we're, we're nitpicking at what we want out of photography now. And, um, a lot of people that, you know, when they get to that place, it becomes more and more difficult to learn. And I think we talked about that, that earlier on, but I remember not just for starting out, but being in the middle of, of an ongoing photographic journey. And a lot of it is when you get stuck in those creative ruts and you're just like, you know, you, you almost don't want to keep learning because you just want to reach a plateau where you're just like, where you're satisfied with your work. And that that doesn't ever last. It never happens. So a lot of it is you got to find some off the wall shit that is not who you are as a photographer. And you have to do that. You have to test it out. You have to test out the editing style. You have to test out the shooting style. You have to beat it out to know whether or not it is, um, you know, something you're going to incorporate into your book. And here's the thing, even if you don't like the shooting style, even if it doesn't jive with you, I, I can guarantee you that one of the steps of the process to shooting in a different style or editing in a different style, you're going to use in the future. That's going to be a part of your portfolio that I can promise you. Yeah. And you know, to what we talked about in the episode where we're talking about sending the ladder back down, uh, go study under somebody who's not like you or just, or somebody that you admire, go see how somebody, um, how their process is. And you may find that, oh, wow, this is like opening up this new world of creativity for me. And now all of a sudden I've unlocked this part of my creativity. I didn't even know existed just by going and hanging out with somebody for a few hours on set, you know, go, uh, buy some passion books of, uh, Richard Avedon or, or, uh, Herb Ritz or somebody like that, go find somebody, Ansel Adams or whoever, whoever inspires you, go, go look at work of people that you'll never be as good as. And, uh, you know, we talked about it earlier, imitate their style just to learn what they're doing. You know, obviously don't rip them off don't like take their photos, like, you know, exactly like compose and all that. Like don't, don't, don't steal, but borrow 
and incorporate that and put a notch on your belt. Uh, that, that's what I do when I hit a rut. Uh, something I've been doing lately is I've been grabbing my big coffee table books and taking them with me to shoots. Uh, I find something that's kind of coincides with our mood board. So if I have like a, you know, a model that shows me a, a mood board and I see a couple like Peter Lindbergh shots on there, I'm like, I'm going to grab my Peter Lindbergh book and take it with me to the shoot. And I go, well, I see that you chose these two shots. While I'm getting set up, spend 15 minutes looking at this book. And then, then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> they start seeing like Kate Moss and stuff like that. And that's I, cool. I, I will I will read those books too. That's what I did for yesterday's shoot. I brought a Herbert's book in for a model who was really like her mood board had some shots of Madonna on there that Herbert's took. And I was like, I've got a Herbert's book right here. And I was like, look at these. And she's looking at pictures of like Naomi Campbell and stuff like that. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah. And so she was like, when, it's not even just getting a creativity rise out of yourself. It's getting a creativity rise out of your talent. And that's what I was using that for was like, she's getting super inspired by these Herbert shots. I was like, yeah, so first of all, I'm not as good as Herbert's, but we'll give, we'll give it a shot. You just uh, finding ways to get creativity, not just out of you, but out of others, because then they can elevate your shoots to another level, which may build your confidence and then foster your creativity even more. Yeah. And you want to develop that eye. You want to see. I keep talking about seeing in, in this episode and other episodes, but it really is like you have to train your eye. Uh, one example is that is when I first learned how to air, like how to retouch skin for the first year and a half, all my photos, like the models looked like plastic. They literally looked like just flat skin, plastic, like hominoids. So that, that you had the, um, you had the, uh, uncanny Valley going on. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. They look like humanoids. Did you know that the, uh, the, the extreme reaction to the uncanny valley, which for those of you who don't know what the uncanny uncanny valley is, it's people who kind of look like people, humanoids, the people are subjects that kind of look like people, but don't quite look like people. The less they look real, the more uncomfortable they make us. And that's why if you're a professional retoucher and you want to work for Olay or one of those brands, they will not let you use frequency separation. They will only let you do dodge and burn to join their houses. You have to be very natural at what you do. And uh, if you try to cut corners, they'll call you out on it and they won't hire you. But uh, the bottom line is, is that it's the filter thing. It's the Instagram filter face thing that makes you look fake. And for some reason, we've conditioned an entire generation of people to think that looks normal. But that doesn't look normal because the extreme anthropological reaction to that was that when the Cro-Magnons were in the world and they kind of look like us, the human being's uncomfortable uh, reaction to that was that they killed them off. So uh, that's why when you're trying to sell Olay, if the person looks fake, it won't sell Olay. It'll make people uncomfortable and uh, go and violent. Yeah. Yeah. And violent. Yeah. Well, that, and that's the interesting thing is now when I take a photo, like I, cause I started on frequency separation. In fact, I still do use frequency separation for, you know, for specific things and I'm phasing out of it because I, th I think it's lazy. First of all, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a lot of work to begin with. It's, it's, it's algorithmic, which our faces are not. Yeah, well, that's that's the big problem is it is algorithmic. It has a profile. And that's the thing is I couldn't see it until about two years ago. I, at first, I when I was getting really good at a sort of natural frequency separation, like a passable, I was thinking to myself like, oh, okay, this is really good. Like we're getting to a place where like, okay, I can, I can do this repeatedly. And then, you know, starting about two years ago, I started seeing it. I'm like, oh God, this doesn't look good. You know, the, the, my eye got better. My, my, my eye got better than the technique. And so now I, I mostly just, you know, obviously get rid of blemishes, do a little bit of, um, uh, dodge and burn. And then, 
you know, for the most part, boy, I guess it is. It's mostly macro dodging and burning. I won't even micro dodge and burn uh, because it's just it. Believe me, it's not worth it. The natural will uh, win most of the time. Yes, uh, and if you're listening and you're wondering even where to start with that, uh, there's a really talented uh, retoucher named Zoe Noble. She is amazing, uh, and I totally steal her methods and apply it to what I do. And uh, she, she's she's an awesome uh, Capture One ambassador, and uh, she she does some amazing work. She'll teach you how to do a workflow between Capture One and uh, and Photoshop. But yeah, I love that. Um, I you know I think that. This discussion uh, could be better broken up into multiple episodes. So yeah, that I'm gonna I'm gonna leave us on that note today. I think we could do this as many different parts. There's so much to talk about growing as a photographer, and that's really a theme of our show. So we'll we'll do another episode on this in the future. Uh, we're gonna have some guests coming in studio soon. Uh, we're gonna do some talking about retouching. I'm gonna get that set up. I want to work on an episode with a professional retoucher. Talk about methods uh, for retouching. I want to do some episodes on many different fascinating subjects. We want to do a fine art episode. Uh, we want to have uh, some awesome photographers call in uh, from all over the world and then have some local photographers uh, join us in studio as well here in Austin, Texas. So I thank each and every one of you for listening to today's episode. You can find us at f11pod.com and all the major uh, podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. So until next time, chase light, not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.